Okay, Isaac, for our listeners out there that can't see your computer screen, what are you looking at? I am on the Rijksmuseum's store website looking at a pair of little Playmobil people, but they're not just any Playmobil. They're the two central militiamen from Rembrandt's 17th century masterwork, The Night Watch. And I'm also looking at your screen. I see a Night Watch umbrella, a Night Watch coffee mug, a tea towel, and even a Night Watch-themed color pencil set. All of this online shopping has a purpose. On this very special 50th episode of the RT Podcast, we're tackling the question, why is this painting famous enough to deserve its own tea towel? I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined this week by our producer, Abigail Kane, out from behind the soundboard. Glad to be here. So, Abby, those little Playmobil figures don't really do the Night Watch justice, do they? No, I mean, they're cute, but in real life, it's a massive painting. It's 11 feet tall by 14 feet wide. So if you can imagine that, the figures are life-size. It's this life-size depiction of an Amsterdam militia marching through the streets of the city. It's pretty much made people's jaws drop since it was first painted in 1642. Yeah, and it's this incredible example of this very Rembrandt-esque look. These beautiful golden lights shining down on, in this case, the central figure of the lieutenant and the captain. And then behind, these deep, dramatic shadows where there's this whole host of figures doing all sorts of things. You know, they're firing muskets, they're reloading them, there's a couple kids playing tag in the background, and this whole thing is just full of motion and action. Uh, I think if there is one painting in the collection of the Rijksmuseum that you can really hear, it's the Nightwatch. That's Peter Roloffs, curator of 17th century Dutch painting at the Rijksmuseum, the home of Rembrandt's Nightwatch. And when he called us, he was standing right in front of the painting. You see a barking dog. Someone is playing the drums. The captain is giving this signal of, well, moving, uh, marching out. And then all of the other members of this uh, Civic Guard company are just joining him in this same kind of movement. Now, for an artwork to end up on an umbrella, a tea towel, an iPhone case, even a Playmobil set, it has to reach a certain level of fame. You can name some artworks in this category easily. The Mona Lisa, Starry Night, The Scream, and of course, The Night Watch. Almost everyone in the world knows these paintings and what they look like, but what most people can't explain is the why. The reason that those few paintings are more famous than the thousands of other inventive and moving artworks that fill museums across the globe. So what makes these works so iconic? Is there some kind of key to their popularity? Is there even a secret formula? Uh, I'm Derek Thompson, the author of Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction. Derek is as close as it gets to an expert on popularity. His book examines the meteoric rise of a few cultural phenomenons, things like Fifty Shades of Grey or Taylor Swift. And in each case, he's figuring out why exactly that thing is so famous. And one of the lessons from his research is this. It's dangerous and lazy to conflate fame and quality. Quality gets you above the threshold, but fame is often a story of happenstance and distribution and power. Take the story of Gustave Caillebotte, for example. You know Monet, you know Renoir, but you probably don't know Caillebotte's name, even though he was a talented impressionist in his own right. The thing is, Caillebotte was rich, unlike many of the other impressionists, so when his friends, like Monet, were having trouble selling a piece, Gustave would take it off their hands. 
Kaibot died young, and when he passed away, he willed his collection of over 60 Impressionist works to the French state. The Museum of Luxembourg reluctantly accepted a selection of the paintings after much lobbying from Kaibot's pal, Renoir. Those paintings ended up in the first ever exhibition of Impressionism at a national museum. And because of that, they were loaned out again and again and reprinted endlessly in catalogs. The core Impressionist painters are those seven, I believe, not because they are so obviously better than other Impressionists like Caibat, but because they received a moment of public consecration from the French government. All that to say that Rembrandt's Nightwatch is an exceptional painting, but that's not the only reason that we know it today. There are so many wonderful painters, and I only know a handful of them, and Rembrandt's one of them. So there's, there's some story there beyond quality. So what is that story? Well, it's one that lasts centuries, includes a devastating bankruptcy, slanderous rumors, a swift rise to fame, and even at one point, Rembrandt's famous night watch slashed to ribbons. It starts with Rembrandt in his 20s. He was noticed by some very important people very early in his career. And that's like any artist today. If you get picked up by the right people, it really makes a difference. That's Stephanie Dickey. I hold the Bader Chair in Northern Baroque Art at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. People first noticed Rembrandt because of his history paintings. But then when he moved to Amsterdam from his hometown of Leiden in 1631, he quickly conquered the portrait market with his knack for capturing human emotion. Even before the Night Watch, he was becoming the hot new thing. Everybody wanted to paint like Rembrandt. Everybody wanted to own a Rembrandt portrait of themselves. Everybody loved the way he made them look because he really digs deep into personality with his portraits. He gives everyone a sense of inner life. And the Night Watch was like 18 portraits in one. Around 1639, an Amsterdam militia group commissioned Rembrandt to paint a group portrait for the wall of their meeting hall. Now, when you think of militia groups during this time, think of volunteer fire departments. These people could fight if they needed to, but they really didn't do a whole lot. They mostly were businessmen and lawyers, and they ate and drank in big rooms together. And they liked to decorate these rooms with big portraits of themselves. And usually these portraits looked a lot like, you know, an elementary school class photo. Everyone lined up in two or three rows staring out at the viewer. While the Night Watch comes out of this tradition, what Rembrandt did was absolutely revolutionary. He painted this portrait where you couldn't see everyone clearly. Instead, there's this unified and dynamic scene where it feels like the captain is going to walk straight out of the painting towards you. Out of this very simple and plain motif, Rembrandt created this enormous pageant that is not only a group portrait, but also a genre scene, you could say, of people organizing themselves in daily life. That's Marriott Vesterman, executive vice president of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and a longtime scholar of Dutch art. He added elements of allegory, and he used some of the techniques of one of the most prestigious genres of painting of the time, which was history painting. Usually, history paintings depicted religious or mythological scenes on a grand scale. What makes the Night Watch so special is that Rembrandt applied all of the drama of those works to real people, to the bankers and the merchants who are all in the civil militia. And this right here is another key to why something becomes famous. Derek, our popularity guru, says that although we tend to believe we love novelty, in the end, we actually gravitate towards what he calls familiar surprises. Uh, we like movies that remind us uh, of our old favorites. We like new songs that remind us of our favorite songs. We even like new ideas uh, that remind us of the ideas we've already decided are true. 
So this is part of why the Night Watch was so successful early on. It took several familiar formulas and twisted them together to create something brand new. Marriott sees those same characteristics across a range of famous works, anything from Vermeer's Girl with a Pearl Earring to the Taj Mahal. Each of them, and it's true for the Night Watch, fits a certain type that was recognizable to people, but at the same time adds something to it that makes it a more spectacular example of the type, or especially a more unusual and innovative one, and is therefore never really copied again. And I think that's true for all of those works I just mentioned. Today, we know that the Night Watch became famous almost as soon as Rembrandt completed it. But for most of the 19th and 20th century, people believed the exact opposite. That that painting marked the end of the artist's fabulously successful career and actually sent him spiraling into bankruptcy. So how did they get it so wrong? Well, one consequence of painting the Night Watch like a history painting is that not every figure received the same level of prominence. Some recede into the shadows, one has his face blocked by an arm... Because each militiaman contributed to Rembrandt's commission, later historians assumed that those partially obscured figures would have been pretty mad that they didn't get their money's worth. But according to Stephanie, that's not the case. There's no reason to think that that's really true. They might have been thrilled to be part of this remarkably radical rethinking of what could have been a very boring painting. There's some evidence from the time that the reception wasn't entirely positive. We know that at least one of his contemporaries complained that maybe there could have been a couple more lights in the painting. We also know that a shield was added to the painting after it was completed that listed all of the names of the militiamen who were included. But ultimately, the work was paid for and hung up. The captain commissioned a copy of it to include in his personal scrapbook. There are even travel guidebooks from that time that list the painting as one of Amsterdam's main attractions. Was it always displayed in a public building? Yes, yes. And that is part of the reason it contributed to Rembrandt's fame, because it was in a building that was open to the public for visits. There were banquets and auctions and other events that took place there. So it was one of the most visible of his paintings. So we can be relatively certain that the Night Watch did not decimate Rembrandt's career. What is true is that Rembrandt declared bankruptcy soon after he painted the work, but he was more the victim of bad money management stemming from his own voracious appetite for art collecting. It also didn't really help that he lost out on some commissions, a casualty of changing portraiture tastes in Amsterdam. It's the difference between people who are self-made millionaires and the grandchildren of those self-made millionaires who are living on inherited wealth, living in a way that makes them want to have the finest things in life to show off their wealth. And they start to prefer portraits, which are about glitz and glamour and shiny satin clothes, not about the inner life of the person, but about the bling. So Rococo, with its ornate designs and pastel colors, swept through Europe. And as it did, Rembrandt's popularity began to wane. If you can think about Rembrandt's style, it's basically the exact opposite of that. It's dark. It's thick paint. It's heavy brush strokes. Now, that's not to say that Rembrandt was ever destitute, although he does have to give up his beautiful, heavily mortgaged house, and he suffers some devastating personal losses. When he dies in 1669, he definitely lives in a much lesser 
part of town in a rental property. He had lost his wife, Saskia, at a young age. His common-law wife, Hendrikje, precedes him in death. His son and other children and the one surviving son, they die before him. So he really had seen a lot of tragedy, which feeds into that narrative of decline. So when we last saw Rembrandt, it was the end of the 17th century. He'd outlived all his family. He was basically broke. His style was no longer in vogue. So how does that Rembrandt become the Rembrandt of today? The person whose night watch is the centerpiece of an entire museum, whose work sells at auction for millions and millions of dollars. If Rembrandt ever had a bumpy patch, the period after his death was it. In 1715, the night watch is moved to a less prominent location and is actually cut down by a foot to fit the new space, even removing a few figures. When Joshua Reynolds, a British painter, visited Amsterdam in 1781, he was less than impressed by the work. He wrote about its sorry state and even questioned if it was by the master himself. Rembrandt's biographers from the time certainly didn't help matters. They wrote unflattering and apocryphal stories about him. They described him as so greedy he would try and pick up gold coins his students had painted on the floor. So what changed? Well, in the 19th century, particularly in France, comes the rise of realism and impressionism. What those artists want to do is paint daily life, and they want to paint it with authenticity and with rough, expressive brushwork. And Rembrandt and his contemporaries become a role model for that. Also remember that the Impressionists were the first artists who became famous by being rejected. In their own time, they were very anti-establishment. And they saw Rembrandt as a figure who also had been rejected, which, as we now know, isn't really true, but that was part of the legend by then. And in France, they're already primed to like Rembrandt. He had a thriving print market that allowed his fame to spread throughout Europe, both during his lifetime and long after. When you look at Rembrandt's production, printmaking is just as innovative and just as extensive as his pictorial career. And what is so wonderful about prints is that they're a little bit cheaper. You can print many of them. You could have print runs of 300, 400, 500, sometimes more than that. And Rembrandt's prints ended up being the focus of the very first catalog raisonné in Western art. That was published in 1751. And of course, a catalog raisonné, it's a fancy word, but basically it's just a collection of all of an artist's work throughout their life. And sometimes, like in the case with Rembrandt, it's organized by medium. So that did yet more to promote uh, his fame. So well before the history of photography came about, well before the reproduction of works of art became a standard thing in the mid-19th century, Rembrandt's work was well known. And so these French artists in the 19th century who were starting to obsess over Rembrandt, they saw him a little bit differently than previous generations did. I think the French always took, at least in the 18th century, took a lighter-hearted view of him. And that is perhaps because they knew the etchings so well. And the etchings have a wider range of the panoply of human endeavors. And there are lots of little genre figures and beggars and a kid stealing a pancake from a dog or vice versa. That sort of thing. There's a lighter-heartedness to a lot of that production. That, Marriott believes, is another key to fame. Famous works and the artists that made them have some quality that allows them to mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, no matter what era they were born into or where they're from. I think it's Simon Sharma who said that every generation gets the Rembrandt it deserves. Take Rembrandt's native country of the Netherlands, for example. 
there's this fascination outside the Netherlands with him as this kind of renegade. But inside the Netherlands, he's, he's always perceived as one of the greatest artists of the native tradition. The Night Watch is moved to the Rijksmuseum in the early 1800s, and by the end of the century, it's positioned as the most important work in the whole building. Peter, the Rijksmuseum curator we spoke to, said the museum's almost like a cathedral with the Night Watch as the altarpiece. It's not a religious painting that's been installed there, but it's a painting about a well, civic subject, and that's very typical for this nation, since it were these men of flesh and blood who created this nation, who built this nation. It's much more than just a painting, but it's, it stands for the country uh, as a whole, almost. As a prominent symbol, the painting was subjected to several attacks by vandals throughout the 20th century. The first, in 1911, a man slashed the night watch with a shoemaker's knife. Then, in 1975, an unemployed schoolteacher went at it with a bread knife. And in 1990, a man sprayed acid on it. The question that you asked at the beginning, why do works of art famous, could almost be phrased also as, why do works of art get attacked? And there's a long history of iconoclasm for different reasons, but obviously people find them in the modern age attractive vehicles to act out a certain rage that often is not so much directed at that artist as to something that that work of art stands for. Mariette, who grew up in the Netherlands, recalls seeing the 1975 attack when it was first reported on TV. I remember very powerfully as a child seeing the pictures on television of these, just these pieces of canvas hanging off of the painting and just these these slashes that had been made, these vertical slashes and crying. It took four years, but the painting was ultimately repaired and hung back up in the Rijksmuseum. And now it's safe to say that painting is everywhere in the Netherlands. And the Rijksmuseum is a big part of the reason why. Not only does the painting appear on all sorts of promotional material, but the museum has even started a program to bus every single child in the country under the age of 12 to see the Night Watch in person. And just this past summer, they staged a huge attention-grabbing stunt that put the Night Watch back in the news. All right. Um, my name is uh, Stefan Kasper. I'm from the Netherlands, the city of Haarlem. Um, I'm a painter, drawing, uh, collager. Stefan's day job is teaching at a high school. And so every year he takes his students to the biggest museum in Amsterdam, the Rijksmuseum, to see the art on display there. And this year seemed like every other year. The visit began with a guided tour that ended up at the Night Watch. More than 300 people were standing in front of the Night Watch, congratulating me with, with what's happening. And I still don't know what's happening at, the, at, at that point, you know. Turns out Stefan was the 10 millionth visitor to the museum after its huge renovation and reopening in 2013. So I walk up to the, the, the museum director, Taco Dibbets, and he told me, you have the golden ticket. You can sleep in front of the Night Watch. It was a choice, so he asked me, uh, do you want to? But yeah, well, it, it was obvious uh, I wanted to, yeah. So Stefan got the whole museum to himself for one night. A bed in front of the night watch, champagne, breakfast in the morning, the works. And he said the best part was just being able to look at the painting. It's the most famous work of art in the whole museum, so it's always mobbed by tourists trying to snap a selfie. And he said being alone allowed him to see details he never would have noticed otherwise. Well, one, one thing I, I still remember is um, it's a sleeve of a man uh, standing in the right corner. Um, he holds a drum. 
and he's pounding it. And the fabric of his jacket, it's painted really spectacular, actually. It's, it's, it's really loose and it feels so vibrant. And that's, that's one of the things I discovered being alone with it. It's over 500 years old, but it feels like it, it was made only yesterday. Which is one thing to consider about artworks as famous as The Night Watch. They've been reproduced and studied and written about so many times. You can find their images on tea towels and iPhone cases, even Playmobil sets. But as ubiquitous as the images are, it's almost impossible to have an intimate moment alone with the artwork itself. So we'll leave you with the next best thing, the feeling of waking up alone in front of one of the world's most famous works of art. So when I woke up, it was dark and I turned on the light and it, the, the, the painting came to life in front of me. And, and that, was, that was an awesome moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope you enjoyed that very special 50th podcast episode. As you might have guessed, that took a little bit of extra work. But we had a great time doing it. And I hope you guys had as much fun listening to it as we did putting it together. We'd love to hear what you thought about this episode. Please send us an email at podcast at artsy.net. I promise I read every single one. You might not respond to them, though. I might not respond to them. And whether or not you send us an email, please review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. And we really would love as many people as possible to listen to this episode. See you next time. Our music this week, in order of appearance, theme music as always by Broke for Free, additional songs by Chris Zabrinsky, Jazar, and another song by Broke for Free. Our producer, as always, Abigail Kane. 